Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Poulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In battle, the U.S. Marine Corps trains their soldiers to adapt, improvise, and overcome in carrying out the mission. Leading up to Matthew chapter 21, Jesus has been making plans to carry out his mission with little help from his followers. Only now, on the eve of battle does he find two able recruits, two blind men, willing to listen. So Jesus adapts and improvises. In place of James and John, he sends two scruffy blind militia ahead to scout the terrain. As to whether or not Jesus overcomes, you may have to reread St. Paul's letters a few hundred times before you can hear Matthew's answer. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos, And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 346 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Just last week, we talked about the replacements. These two blind men sitting on the side of the road crying out for mercy demonstrated that they submit their will to the will of the Father. And now finally, as Jesus turns to enter Jerusalem, leaving Jericho behind and marching in victory with a kind of victory that looks very different than the victory of Caesar, he has finally two disciples that will do what he says. If he tells them to go, they will go. If he tells them to come back, they will come back. He finally has followers that are willing to submit to his father's instruction, which is the instruction that Jesus gives and the directive that he proclaims. And we have a couple of beggars who until recently were blind, along with rebellious disciples, former fishermen who have been wandering around the land for however long with Jesus, not an impressive group of people to be approaching Jerusalem in any kind of stance of victory or any kind of assumption of victory or hope of victory. These are not the team you would put your hopes on. I mean, it would make a great Hollywood movie to have the ragtag bad news bearers come and win the pennant. But this is definitely a ragtag group of people taking on the Roman Empire. And this is beyond the Roman Empire because, of course, Jerusalem is not a city made famous by the Romans, but a city that ever since David, significantly, was a city to be conquered, that the Israelites wanted to take and own. They took it from the Jebusites 
back in David's day, and now Jesus is coming to control this. But in a very particular way, as we're going to see, he brings in a not very impressive, not very military group to take over the city, waiting to be taken from the Roman Empire, an army not to be messed with. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. The first thing to note here is the meaning of Bethpage, Bethphagi, the house of figs that aren't ripened. The metaphor of fruit that is already ripe is a metaphor that indicates it's too late. But it's not too late at the beginning of chapter 21. Jesus has his two lieutenants, and he is marching against Jerusalem. Remember that first he must conquer Jerusalem before he conquers Rome. And you and I were rereading Zechariah together, and that follows the pattern of that book. First he must conquer his own people, and then he will turn to conquer the nations. And this is how the will of God functions in the story. We tend to want to use God to build ourselves up, to build up our group, our religion, our tradition, our whatever. But in Scripture, God is the only one who is built up. So Jerusalem is first on his list, but don't worry, Caesar, you're next. I would prefer that they would say the two disciples, because it would make a very clear reference to the last chapter. But it's hard to miss the fact that Jesus just gained two disciples in the last chapter, which was not a given. I mean, don't forget, we talked last time about the two blind men who did exactly the opposite of what Jesus did, and now we have two blind men who are healed, but then do precisely what Jesus wanted them to do, which is to follow him. And here we go to Jerusalem, so we assume they're with, I mean, there's no reason not to think, and then sending two disciples, the last two disciples we talked about were these blind men. Could it be the two sons of Zebedee? Yeah, I guess, but how much does Jesus trust them at this point? It would be an awful large test of faith for Jesus to believe in those disciples, considering how little they believed in him. But here's two disciples, these two blind men, who, when they were asked if they had faith back in chapter 9, they didn't do the right thing. But here, when they were asked what they want him to do, and they said that our eyes might be opened, he did it, and then they followed. These are ones who show their faith in their actions, because without action, there is no faith. I mean, you and I, Father, we were talking about this in Galatians. Paul talks about how faith or trust is energusi, energized by love, that if you want to drive your faith, you better have some love in the tank, otherwise it's not going to go. The fact that these blind men submitted to Jesus and submitted to his teaching, that is love. And through that love, they followed him to Jerusalem. And because of that love, they were the ones who went and followed where Jesus sent them. Look, if Jesus were to send James and John, the sons of Zebedee, to go fetch a moped, they would come back with a Harley. Because deep down inside, they're the first Americans. They think bigger is better. They're looking for the glitz and the glamour and the career advancement. So why would he send them? Saying to them, 
Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Why would they obey him if just a few verses ago they were asking mommy to help them get a good job in the kingdom? Of course he's sending the two blind men. Who else would he send? It's so important that we follow the storyline. We've been saying that for a long time, and each time we come across these tidbits by following the storyline closely and sequentially, we realize how dangerous it is to pick up chapter 21, hear it in church starting with verse 1, and imagine on Palm Sunday that you've heard the gospel. No, it's not Palm Sunday without the end of chapter 20. So the challenge here for our listeners is not to treat the Bible like your book of wise quotes or pithy sayings, but to treat it like it's intended to be treated as a story. He chose these scruffy guys to go and do this because exactly what you're saying, like the two sons of Zebedee were more interested in thrones than in crosses. They said, yeah, 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 to the cross because they were excited about the thrones. You can't trust them. Jesus can't trust them to do his bidding to make it to the cross. He has two disciples who prove themselves uninterested in crosses and another two who are ready to do what he says. Who is he going to go with? And we need to be really careful of this because this is a purely human, a universally human quality, which is to be interested in the glitz and the glamour. Everyone wants to have a church with a million-dollar budget and a gold dome and 300 people coming every Sunday. Do you want to put your trust in a scruffy guy in your church basement who helps out a couple opioid addicts do the right thing and serve the church? Or do you want a million-dollar budget? I mean, I know what your priest is going to put their effort into. It's not the scruffy guy. But if you got a scruffy guy who's able to give life to people who are opioid addicts, those opioid addicts are going to be your soldiers, not the people who come for the gold dome. The people who come for the gold dome are going to go to the bigger dome next time. But the people who have been given life because this path of wisdom has given them something that they didn't have before, they're going to be the ones who are going to do the right thing and are going to obey for the sake of the kingdom. In order to submit to the will of the Father in Matthew chapter 20 and chapter 21, you have to accept that even if your church has no dome, the very fact that you have built something with your own hands puts you at odds with the will of the Father because all he wants from you is to work with the drug addict. He doesn't want your human shelter. He doesn't need it. God does not need a roof over his head. And I think that's an important point here, that what's at stake is literal death. It is literal death that reveals whether or not one is righteous or not in the gospel, period. Christians love to talk about dying 
It's the one thing that even fundamentalists talk about metaphorically <laughs> when it comes to Scripture. I've never heard anyone talk about it as Scripture intends it, which is literally. To die in Scripture means to die as a martyr. There's no gray area. There's no spiritual dying or metaphoric dying or I'm dying every day. You, you're not dying until you're dead. That's why Father Paul always points out that the passage from Galatians that is chanted in the baptismal service, as many as have been baptized into Jesus Christ have put on Christ, the verb to baptize in that verse is in the aoristos, which is a very interesting verb form that is incomplete without horizon, meaning that your baptism is as good as complete, but it's not complete until you actually die. That is when we'll know whether or not you're truly baptized in the witness of your death. What that means is everything we do short of losing with Jesus Christ is problematic. Everything is under judgment. There's nothing you can claim that isn't under judgment. And that is so difficult for the followers of Jesus to understand. They're not even in the range of trying to figure out what's righteous. They're still jockeying for position in a worldly sense. But it's this difficult, difficult teaching of the cross in 1 Corinthians that the only way to walk the path of righteousness is to be destroyed, to lose completely. And you have to practice losing until you actually die. And in death where you can't build anything, then you're pleasing to God. In the meantime, everything you do is under the pressure of the fact that you haven't totally been shut up in death, which means you're still trying to express a will and a word against the throne of the Father. Often when people do the will of God, they want to have a reason. But if you're a sergeant in the military and your major tells you to do something, when you go and tell your men what they need to do, you don't say, I think it's a good idea for us to go and take that hill. Because, you know, you understand if in the big scheme of things in this battle, if we don't take that hill, then we're in bad shape. No, no. He says, the major told us we need to take that hill. And that's it. You move on. And understanding that is very difficult because when the Lord commands us to love our neighbor, we need no other reason other than the Lord commanded me. And if we add anything onto that, then we risk judgment because those are our words. Those are not the Lord's words. And this happens in Scripture from time to time. It's very interesting when the prophet Elisha tells his disciple to go and tell Jehu what he needs to do next, he gives him very precise words that he needs to tell Jehu. But then the disciple adds on extra words, and those words are all about judgment and violence, and Jehu is only too happy to go and carry out those words of violence and destruction that were added on by the disciples. So adding on words is very dangerous. I mean, you and I know, Father, our professor, Father Paul, 
If we tried to explain something that he told us to do, no, 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 that was big trouble. Stop, and you go and you do it. Repeating anything that didn't come from his mouth, or here, these two disciples, repeating anything that didn't come from Jesus' mouth goes beyond what they're to do. You have to understand this in the same way as the centurion. I say you come, and they come. That's it. These two disciples have to trust that the Lord not only has authority over them, but has authority more broadly. And simply by evoking the name of the Lord, they have to trust that evoking that name of the Lord will cause it to come to pass. And so with trust, they follow what the Lord teaches and trust that if the Lord says it's going to work out this way, then I'm not allowed to think something else. It's not up to me to be creative. It's not up to me to be persuasive. I am not allowed to use anything to persuade others other than the Lord has need of them. In chapter 21, in Bithphagi, where we have these unripe figs, this mission is the mission of the Lord of the harvest. We're coming full circle in Matthew. The Lord now is coming to reap the harvest of his work. This is the fulfillment of the ministry of Jesus Christ in Matthew, and that is a very serious mission. And if you are sent like a Roman centurion to carry out that mission, not only do you not answer to anyone but the one who sent you, but you don't have time to stop and debate theology or philosophy with them. This is it. The battle plan is in motion. And Joshua is marching from Jericho to Jerusalem. This is the time of victory. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Again, we mentioned earlier in today's program that in Zechariah, as generally speaking in the prophets, the Lord always begins by conquering his own people before he turns to the nations. And of course, beautifully in the prophets, it's always the nations that do the Lord's bidding in conquering Jerusalem, which is why it's so silly every time people say, God bless America. (laughs) Be careful what you pray for, friends. Do you know what you're talking about? You know, it's a very serious matter. But it's beautiful because as Matthew unfolds in this last section of the book, we'll see this interplay between Zechariah and Matthew and the beautiful exegesis of Zechariah in the Pauline school. Yeah, if we tried to connect all the pieces of Zechariah right now, it would be too difficult because they're so interwoven here. But just to mention this point, which comes from chapter 9 of Zechariah, about the king coming on an ass and the colt the full of an ass, those are the mounts upon which the conquering king comes to Jerusalem. But what's even more significant is God, through the prophets, paints the picture of Israel defeating both Tyre and Sidon, as well as the entire nation of the Philistines, all five of the cities. He mentions four of the five cities, but 
all of the Philistines will be destroyed. Yet, God will also destroy the bow and the horse and the chariot out of Israel. And Israel will only speak peace to the nations. So there's this paradox that's painted in Zechariah where God is going to defeat the nations with peace, not resulting in peace like our peacemakers do. We send rockets and a battleship in order to bring peace, right? Here we have, I'm going to destroy all their instruments of war and bring peace. At least that's a little more consistent than our general military strategy we have in the U.S. Where will that conquering king stand? Well, in Zechariah 14, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives, which we just saw in verse 1. So Jesus is depicted here as the Messiah, as the Christ from Zechariah. And he's going to come on this ass. Now, this also contrasts with Caesar Augustus, who came on a white stallion. Jesus is going to be on a donkey. The way that he is depicting himself, it's anti-Roman at every turn. It's anti-violence. It's anti-human. It's anti-empire. It's anti-biological human power. He comes without weapons. He comes without a great steed, with a ragtag group of non-soldiers to defeat the greatest empire the world had ever known at this point. Just as he must now save Jerusalem from the reign of David and the rulers of Israel who betray the Lord's Torah in the Old Testament, after he consolidates his victory against Jerusalem, he needs to take out Caesar Augustus, the heir of Julius Caesar, so that in Rome there is only one God. This is how he saves his people, which is inclusive of the nations. When I say his people, you think I'm talking about Israel or your church or your denomination or your whatever. But in Matthew, the gospel of the wheat and the tares, the Romans are also his people, as are any nation unspoken in the gospel, but present to you as a disciple of the gospel. All belong to God. That is why the victory that is set forth in chapter 21 is so magisterial. That is why the liturgical celebration of Palm Sunday feels so paschal in the Middle East, because there is an understanding by the liturgicist that this is the moment when God achieves his victory, but the victory comes in the literal death of Jesus, because that is when Caesar is overthrown. That is when David is overthrown, because Jesus Christ is saying to us that the highest human station must be subjugated to the will of the Father and emasculated in death. And the funny thing is about this teaching is that it's true. Everybody dies, and all the terrors and all the horrors of human civilization are rooted in a denial of that fact. We act like we can live forever, and then we go on to fulfill our ambitions as though we can achieve divinity, hearkening back to the Tower of Babel.
So this is, in effect, a consolidation of the victory that was wrought in the prophecy of Zechariah. Now, truly, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, everything is being handed over to Jesus, and everything is being put under his feet, and the last enemy to die will be death itself. The death wielded by David and Caesar. That is the showdown. It's very exciting, Richard. It's very powerful. I understand intuitively why the early church in its liturgical life was so deeply moved by this passage. So this is the first stage as Jesus prepares himself to enter into the city. And I would recommend that anyone who really wants to understand Matthew become familiar with Zechariah. And by familiar, I mean read Zechariah so that you understand what this really means, what this march of victory means, what the end result is supposed to be, because that is what Jesus is reaching. Jesus is not embodying any kind of victory that you can imagine, because the victory you imagine is the one of the sons of Zebedee, where everyone ends up on sparkly thrones. This is the one that ends the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, where you have the sons of men sitting on thrones. Everybody wants to end up on a throne. And Jesus enters the city on an ass so that he can end up on a cross. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.